0: This is Citations Needed with Nima Shirazi and Adam Johnson. Welcome to Citations Needed, a podcast on the media, power, PR, and the history of bullshit. I am Nima Shirazi. I'm Adam Johnson welcome to 2023 we are in the midst of our sixth season of citations needed and thank you again for joining us of course you can follow the show on twitter at CitationsPod, facebook citations needed and if you are so inclined become a supporter of the show which is 100 percent listener funded through patreon.com
1: citations podcast it really does help keep the show sustainable so if you do listen to the show and you like it please help us out there
0: On a very special episode of Home Improvement, Tim and Jill lecture their son about the dangers of marijuana after he's caught smoking a joint. On a powerful episode of ABC's Sports Night, written by Aaron Sorkin, sportscaster Dan Rydell delivers a four-minute monologue on how Dope killed his younger brother. On a devastating episode of CBS's Chicago Hope, a dozen teenagers are rushed to the emergency room after taking a new psychedelic drug at a rave.
1: We've all seen these very special drug episodes throughout our childhoods and adolescence. For some reason, our favorite shows seemingly out of nowhere decide to dedicate an entire episode to the perils of teenage drug use.
0: These episodes, mostly from the 1980s and 90s, have become a cultural punchline, something amusing and mocked, but ultimately one would think harmless. But what most viewers don't know is that many of these episodes were not just part of a teen-oriented convention turned TV trope. A number of them were actually funded by the federal government to the tune of hundreds of thousands, sometimes millions of dollars, to promote so-called drug awareness.
1: The White House Office of National Drug Control Policy, or the ONDCP, in the late 1990s made a deal with multiple TV networks to include anti-drug messaging and shows plots. In 1997, Congress approved a plan to buy $1 billion of anti-drug advertising over five years for its National Youth Anti-Drug Media Campaign.
0: From at least 1997 to 2000, the feds paid TV networks to air what was ostensibly drug awareness public health information, but was, in many key ways, propaganda to sustain and build support for the war on drugs. $200,000 for the WB's 7th Heaven, $750,000 for Beverly Hills 90210, $1.4 million for ER. The White House Drug Office paid networks large sums of money to weave so-called anti-drug stories into their narratives, undisclosed to the viewer, of course, and often
1: revising and approving scripts without the show's writer's knowledge. And rather than being harmless, if corny anti-drug messaging we can all laugh at now, these narratives were also part of a broader scare strategy to frighten, misinform, and prop up the federal government's war on drugs at home and abroad. On today's episode, we will review some of the major TV shows that ran these episodes, how much money they took from the U.S. government, and how these tropes shaped and directly impacted public policy that promoted racism, imperial meddling in Latin America, and of course, mass incarceration.
0: Later on the show, we'll be joined by Cassandra Frederick, Executive Director of
2: the Drug Policy Alliance. I think the idea of addiction is super flat. And I think people learn differently, but I think there's still a large group of people that feel like if you try a drug once, then you're hooked forever, completely flattening the conversation around dependence and addiction. And so it completely shapes the idea of what addiction is. I think our shows and the mandate was really to make it as scary as possible. Also, it shaped the way that we see people who use drugs and really made us also arbiters to the dehumanization of other people.
1: This episode is a spiritual sequel to episode 140, Kicking the Hollywood Habit, Addiction, Morality, Tales, and Film and TV, which we recorded back in July of 2021 with friend of the show, Zach Siegel, where we detailed Hollywood's treatment of drug use. Senior drug correspondent. Senior drug correspondent. We mentioned briefly the primary subject we're going to be talking about today, which is the way the federal government actually funds very special episodes which we'll get to more later, but we mentioned it only for a few minutes and we really thought it deserved its own episode. So if you want to get a better historical analysis of how Hollywood itself has worked with or has pushed war on drug narratives, which goes hand in hand with this uh, moralistic, tough love, abstinence only approach to drugs, by all means, listen to that. Yeah. There was just say no. There were users or losers.
0: There was, this is your brain on drugs. There was McGruff the crime dog. There was, I learned it from watching you, dad. For decades now, law enforcement, government agencies, nonprofits, and probably your parents as well have been trying to convince teenagers that drugs are the worst. They're dangerous, lethal, and evil. Since at least the middle of the 20th century, educational films shown in classrooms and public service announcements or PSAs that aired during primetime TV commercial breaks, kids in America have been bombarded by
1: adults telling them how harmful and sinister drugs can be. For instance, I mean, everybody knows about Reefer Madness, the other kind of 1950s and 60s anti-drug propaganda. But for those not familiar or who are not intimate with the creative genius that was the anti-drug messaging of the 1950s and 60s, it was very common for PSAs to be produced in concert with the federal government to basically scare teenagers into not using drugs. And of course, these were rife with uh, racism and of course, propping up the broader war on drugs, which was kind of just taken for granted. So let's listen to one of those anti-drug PSAs produced by Encyclopedia Britannica Films in 1951 in partnership with the Juvenile Protective Services of Chicago and the Weebolt Foundation.
3: Youth is a happy time and a carefree time. A time of auto rides and double dates. It's a time of fun, of pranks and jokes of ice-cream cones and chocolate sodas. Youth is a time for getting a job, for finding one's place in the world. But sometimes in these troubled days, the very thoughtlessness of youth has led to a living nightmare. Addiction to drugs, too often acquired with tragic carelessness, may take control of a life and force actions not dreamed of before. Addicts, life's only work is to find money for drugs. In their desperation, no means is too foul. Their only goal in life is to keep the deadening chemicals forever in their heart's blood. Sadly, this
0: episode of Citations Needed will not just listen to 1950s anti-drug PSAs. We are going to talk about other things. (laughs) I I feel like we could listen to those forever. But what is important to recognize is that not only were these PSAs produced for ostensibly educational purposes, but Hollywood got into the game of anti-drug messaging as well. Early, in fact, Dragnet, the show which began as a 1949 radio show later became a sprawling franchise that included multiple TV series from 1951 through 1959, and again, 1967 through 1969, and later produced as a movie in 1987 with Tom Hanks and Dan Aykroyd, not to mention Dabney Coleman and Christopher Plummer. But Dragnet's production was closely connected to the LAPD from its inception. As writer Jackie Shine detailed in a 2015 article, quote, The Los Angeles Police Department was deeply involved in every stage of Dragnet's production, from start to finish. A team of officers called potential cases, and patrolmen and detectives wrote up their own cases in the hopes of inspiring an episode and pocketing a $100 payment. LAPD Chief William H. Parker gave show creator Jack Webb extraordinary access to the department and his officers, including, one magazine suggested, Crime Scene Visits. Scripts, which were studded with real jargon and the names of actual LAPD staff, were submitted to Parker or his surrogates twice, once to check for technical accuracy and once for final approval. In 1953, he ordered Webb to stop using the word cop, which he and J. Edgar Hoover found disrespectful. For several years, Dragnet was actually filmed inside police headquarters. When the department moved to a new building in 1955, Webb built a $40,000 set that replicated the police administration building down to the doorknobs and even used photographs to recreate the views in every office. Webb always used a genuine LAPD badge, a retired style at first, and then a replica detective's badge. And when gunplay was required, a technical advisor brought a service revolver to the set each morning. Webb paid the off-duty officers who were on set during filming and gave 6% of the show's profits to the LAPD, usually in the form of donations to the police academy and the like, end quote.
1: In June 1971, President Nixon declared the launch of the War on Drugs, sort of officially identifying drug abuse as, quote, America's public enemy number one. Former Nixon domestic policy chief John Ehrlichman, somewhat infamously, you may have heard this by now, but if you haven't, we're going to read it to you. He told Harper Magazine writer Dan Baum for a cover story that was published in April of 2016, but was actually an interview from 1995. This is a quote from Baum that Ehrlichman told him in 1995, he said, quote, The Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities, Ehrlichman said. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Do we know we were lying about drugs? Of course we did. End quote. So this is an admission. It's technically hearsay. You can sort of believe it or not. I think it's pretty much in line with what people knew at the time that drugs became a proxy against the left, against black people, as we'll argue later, obviously anti-communism, foreign policy, a way of meddling in Latin America, specifically in the context of the 90s, a way of mopping up the remnants of leftist insurgents in, in Latin America. Because it's drugs are the ultimate pretext, right? Because they're so ubiquitous, you can use them for whatever political aim you really want to use them for, which is why keeping the fear and panic and moral framework around drugs at an 11 at all times is so beneficial. By the 1980s and specifically the launch of then First
0: Lady Nancy Reagan's Just Say No campaign, anti-drug marketing really started targeting children through the medium of television. No longer the purview of just cassette tapes like the 1986 McGruff Smart Kids album featuring Ad Council created Animated anti-drug mascot, McGruff the Crime Dog, of course. And no longer was it just in PSAs. Indeed, 1986 was a critical year in the media blitz against drug use. That year, the Partnership for a Drug-Free America was created by marketing and media executives who, in the words of the partnership itself, quote, believed that the persuasive power of advertising would be effective in preventing young people from trying substances, end quote. The project, which later changed its name to the Partnership for Drug-Free Kids, recounts its own history like this, Quote, under the leadership of former Johnson & Johnson CEO James E. Burke, the partnership brought together the donated time and talent of advertising agencies, production companies, the sag After union, and major television networks, radio stations, magazines, and newspapers in the development and airing of Partnership Public Service Advertising, or PSAs. With iconic PSAs, including Fried Egg and Long Way Home, along with many ads featuring celebrities, prominent sports figures, and real families impacted by addiction, the collective body of work is now the largest single-issue public service campaign in the history of advertising. By the early 1990s, more than $300 million worth of advertising time and space was being contributed annually to these PSAs, end quote. In a 2016 essay examining the propaganda impact of over 40 of these PSAs between 1987 and 1991, Joseph Moreau wrote in the Journal of Social History, quote, In the mid-1980s, the Partnership for a Drug-Free America began the largest privately-run public service campaign in history. Turning their day jobs upside down, professional advertisers exhorted young people to resist the temptations of some of the most sought-after, if illegal, consumer goods in the country. In doing so, they entered a long-running debate in educational circles about how best to teach adolescents about drugs, end quote. Moreau concludes that the messaging of the Partnership for a Drug-Free America, quote, "...aligned closely with the conservatives. Its compelling narratives depicted the perils of drugs and demonstrated why even casual use leads inexorably to serious injury or death. Unlike typical producers of curricular materials, however, many in the partnership faced a unique difficulty in disseminating that message, namely their business ties to producers of legal drugs." The partnership's ads thus came to rest on an unspoken distinction between the hazards of illicit substances, which were skillfully dramatized, and those of licit ones, which had to be ignored. That inconsistency provoked heated criticism as it exposed fault lines in the war on drugs and Reagan-era politics more generally, which uneasily balanced laissez-faire economics with calls for individual responsibility and a return to traditional values, end quote. The government and Hollywood have always been connected in producing drug-related messaging. In the 80s and 90s, anti-drug messaging really became embedded into the actual scripts of TV sitcoms and dramas. The government, mostly through the ONDCP, worked with writers and producers on storylines, funding shows themselves, and often getting networks to donate airtime for the work. Of course, there are, you know, infamous examples like the 1983 Different Strokes episode, The Reporter, on which Nancy Reagan actually pops up at the end to do a bit of Just Say No messaging. There was the 1984 Say Uncle episode of Family Ties, which also has Tom Hanks in it. There's the 1987 Thank God It's Friday episode of Growing Pains. And of course, there is the Save by the Bell episode, with Jesse Spano's caffeine-fueled freakout. Pills, you mean you really are taking drugs? I need
4: them. Jesse, give me those. I need them, Zach, what? I have
3: to sing. Oh, Jesse,
4: you can't sing tonight.
3: Yes, I can. I'm so excited, I'm so excited. I'm so I'm scared. Jesse, Jesse.
0: While drug use by teenagers dropped drastically between the late 1970s and early 1990s, a result less correlated with the simplistic, reactionary, and moralistic anti-drug advertising and entertainment than other societal and environmental factors at the time, it began to rise again later in the decade. Janelle Brown, writing in Salon back in 2002, noted that, quote, When drug use again began to rise in the late 1990s, the Partnership for a Drug-Free America and the ONDCP renewed their efforts. They began working together, and in 1998, they launched the National Youth Anti-Drug Media Campaign. Congress apportioned some $1 billion to pay for advertising space for the ads produced by the two groups, and an anti-drug media blitz flooded the nation with an assortment of anti-drug advertisements." Quote. But the ad scheme wasn't very popular at the TV network, since each government-sponsored ad slot had to be coupled with a free one donated to the partnership by the stations themselves. So effectively getting half price for ads didn't make the networks very happy. So a new scheme was cooked up by Alan Levitt, ONDCP's advertising director, and Zenith Media Services CEO Richard Hamilton, who is then the chief ad buyer for the drug czar's office. They came up with the idea of using programming itself via the plots of popular TV shows to redeem the second ad slot owed to the government. As Daniel Forbes wrote in Salon in 2000, quote, that spring of 1998... Hamilton and Levitt agreed that sitcoms and dramas that met with the Drug Policy Office's approval could be used in lieu of the ad slots still owed to the government. Formulas would be applied to determine the cash value of these embedded messages, and the networks would then be free to resell the commercials they otherwise would have given to the government. Ultimately, the ONDCP developed an accounting system to decide which shows would be valued and for how much. And its officials began to vet television shows in advance, sometimes suggesting alterations. Tapes of the show as broadcast were sent to the office or its ad buyer to be assigned a final monetary value, which would then be subtracted
1: from the total the particular network owed the office, End quote. So the Clinton White House, 1996, 1997, this is one of the few instances where we actually know based on contemporary reporting at the time, the actual amounts that the federal government paid through ad subsidies to these networks to weave in storylines. We're actually going to start off by reading an excerpt from the original report. It was broken by Salon in January of 2000 by the reporter Daniel Forbes. In his article, Primetime Propaganda, he wrote, quote, under the sway of the office of President Clinton's drug czar, General Barry R. McCaffrey, some of America's most popular shows, including ER, Beverly Hills 90210, Chicago Hope, The Drew Carey Show, and Seventh Heaven have filled their episodes with anti-drug pitches to cash in on a complex government advertising subsidy. Here's how helping the government got to be so lucrative. In 1997, Congress approved an immense five-year $1 billion ad buy for anti-drug advertising as long as the network sold ad time to the government at half price, a two-for-one deal that provided over $2 billion worth of ads for $1 billion worth of allocation. But the five participating networks weren't crazy about the deal from the start. And when, soon after, they were deluged with the fruits of a booming economy, most particularly an unexpected wave of dot-com ads, they liked it even less. The White House Office of National Drug Control Policy, or the ONDCP, presented the networks with a compromise. The office would give up some of the precious ad time it had bought in return for getting anti-drug motifs incorporated within specific primetime shows that created a new, more potent strain of anti-drug social engineering the government wanted. And it allowed TV networks to resell the ad time, at the going rate to IBM, Microsoft, and Yahoo. From the New York Times, Mark Lacey, and Bill Carter, who followed up the Salon Report in January 14, because everyone knows when alternative media breaks it, the New York Times has to come in and do their version, their more polite version. They have to make it official. Right, of course. If I had just told you Salon, you wouldn't believe me, but now I see the New York (laughs) Times, you go, oh, of course this is real. Uh, Quote, under the program, government officials get an advanced look at whatever shows the networks want to submit with an opportunity to make the case that anti-drug messaging should be inserted. Occasionally, the Drug Policy Office might suggest that a scene be changed or a line rewritten to show characters turning down marijuana or ruining their lives through cocaine, said Alan Levitt, an official in the Drug Policy Office who helped create the program. All the major networks had participated in the arrangement, saving more than $20 million in advertising cash, end quote. Salon would go on to do an interview with one of the Chicago Hope writers who said he was, quote, stunned by the practice. Salon would write, quote, this reporter spoke with some 20 writers, producers and production executives for major shows, with perhaps one exception. Nobody knew of the arrangement. John Tinker, last season's Chicago Hope executive producer, took the news call requesting an anti-drug episode. He recalls no mention of CBS being held to recoup something like half a million dollars in ad time for one shrill episode he helped craft at the show's owner's request. He said, the financial incentives were, quote, uh, within a quote, complete news to me, unquote, within a quote. He adds, quote, within a quote, I'm so caught off guard, so stunned. I like to think I'm well informed. I had not a clue about any financial incentives. Asked if this scheme gave him cause for concern, he said, of course, it smells manipulative. All of it is very disturbing, end quote. So what we have here is a rare glimpse into sort of how the machinery works, where the White House has this something that kind of seems benign, right? putting anti-drug messages in shows So of seems wholesome. Drugs are bad, putting anti-drug messages in the shows, not bad. Reaching the audience where they are, Adam. That's what's said in
0: communications parlance, right?
1: Education, right, right.
0: The kids are watching TV, get to the kids, tell them that drugs are bad because all of their favorite characters are telling them that or experiencing horrible, horrible realities based on doing drugs, their friends doing drugs. And so they see this, you know, night after night on TV, in shows that they care about, characters they care about, and the messaging is supposed to then work.
1: And of course, the problem with that is that it's bullshit propaganda because the goal is not to educate people about drugs, which we'll explain later. We knew at the time this kind of fear-mongering didn't really help educate or prevent drug use. And in fact, some studies show it did the opposite effect. It enticed teenagers to want to use drugs. The goal was to just support U.S policy around drugs, both foreign and domestic, and to scare the shit out of people, which as you'll see in these upcoming clips is the effective purpose of it. Again, this is is sort of like when the Gates Foundation, as we discussed in the very first episode of the show, episode one, quote unquote, weaved in storylines in a similar way where the people involved, the actors, the production didn't know they had script approval with ad lines because it was above their pay grade. And when they did it about AIDS prevention, you're like, okay, that sort of seems benign. Again, it's still sort of sinister. You should probably disclose that. But when it starts to become charter schools or education reform, where it kind of veers from inoffensive public health measure to propaganda, then it becomes problematic. And of course, there's nothing at all about U.S. drug policy, especially in the 90s, that can be seen as public health oriented. It wasn't at all. It was about fear and ramping up support for doubling down on the war on drugs. And specifically, uh, mass incarceration and imperial meddling in Latin America.
0: Now, a little over a year ago, December of 2021, writer Gabe Levine Dryzen published a piece on this very thing. And conveniently, in that piece, on your own substack, Adam, are a number of clips. And so we're going to watch a number of these that are included in that article because some of them are uh, benign and weird and kind of sad. And then you realize that like the government was paying for them and it's all the weirder. And some of them are just completely fucking bonkers.
1: Take a trip down memory lane. We, we are pandering to our millennial listeners. If you're <laughs> Gen right. Z and you, and you don't even know what a TV show is. Write <laughs> in if you saw these live or if we're just too old. I feel like Gen Z is just fed like pro drug commercials now. They're like so confused <laughs> by this. They're like, what is that? Actually, we're like, we've gone the other way. <laughs> I know it was a weird and wacky time when we were growing up. So here we go. The first
0: one is from season eight. of Beverly Hills 90210. Now, these are back-to-back clips from episodes 21 and 23 of that season. And they detail the character Donna's downward spiral into drug addiction. Now, according to the Salon article that we referenced earlier, based on the price of an ad that ran during the time slot that Beverly Hills 90210 aired, this two-season plotline arc was valued somewhere between $500,000 and $750,000.
1: So a really quick note of methodology we knew the amount the show was paid. We know the year the episode aired. There did not say the exact episode, but it's very, very easy to find because you look at all the episodes of that season, which poor Gabe had to do, and you find the ridiculous didactic drug episode. And we are using our inference to assume that is the one they paid for. And I think it's uh, fairly obvious which ones those are because they're very, very often, as you'll see, they're, they're quite atonal. They're not like the rest of the show. And they're very clearly, again written in, and had script review by someone at the White House.
0: So, let's listen to this clip. This is from Beverly Hills, 90210, season eight. These episodes aired uh, February 25th, 1998, and then March 18th, 98. So here we go. The character of Donna Martin, played by Tori Spelling, is popping pills.
1: What is that? I
5: thought you were holding up. off. Yeah, I was about 4.30 this morning, when it numbed the pain and helped me sleep. I hope you canceled your presentation for today. It's tomorrow. But I did call in sick today.
0: We then see Donna sitting at work, taking pills again
1: in her cubicle,
0: but not feeling great about it.
1: Taking the amphetamine. Take it. Don't take it.
6: At least you got it in case you need it, right? At least you got it in case you need it, right?
1: Brought you two like you asked, but I've got. more. So now she's talking to her drug dealer who just handed her a bunch no, of. No, I, ju-
4: I just uh, need these to get through my presentation. Kelly, where are my pills? Have you
0: seen them? Just a sec.
1: Yeah, she's uh she's going pretty hard here, so we're just we're just taking a bunch of pills over a few episodes. Now she's fiending, you know, Dave, it's not really for a her good pills. Time.
4: Yeah, I'll tell her.
3: Kelly, did you move on? Because I had them. Is this what you're looking for? Yes. Pain's that bad, huh? No,
4: I just like taking pills that completely knock me out. Donna.
0: These episodes showed Donna, uh, yes, on this like downward spiral. She starts, uh, you know, treating her friends terribly. There's one scene later where she's in a doctor's office. And when the doctor leaves, she like raids the
1: cabinet to get more speed. So again, the the show is not interested in um, talking about the <laughs> a holistic view of what causes someone to get addicted to speed or or what the social conditions are or what companies are pushing it, right? They're just sort of interested in scaring you and scaring teenagers, but more importantly, scaring the parents of teenagers, which is really the sort of core demographic of all this bullshit. And then to conclude her downward spiral, she ends up having, of course, an overdose, which is a common trope you'll see throughout these. She lives though, goes on, but uh, more importantly, Fox got their money, got their cash, Season seven of Home Improvement is up next. Season seven of Home Improvement aired an episode called What a Drag, where they found their son's marijuana stash. And Jill and uh, Tim Allen, who, of course, was a snitch and spent years in prison as a drug dealer, they have a discussion about the dangers of pot and marijuana uh, with their teenager on uh, primetime television. And they were paid for this a little over half a million dollars. Sit. Sit
4: look i told you guys i was just holding it for somebody else what do you think we're a bunch of idiots you want us to believe that you're all of a sudden in the marijuana storage business
5: is this your dope or not
4: the truth all right all right it's mine i came to pick it up after the basketball game and i was going to take it to a party well now you're a supplier no dad a lot of kids bring stuff what is it a potluck
5: Is this the only drug you're doing? Yes. How much are you smoking? I don't know, not that much. Once a week, once a month, what? Mom, I
4: do it when I go to parties. It's just a way to kick back and mellow out every once in a while.
5: I see, so you kick back and mellow out to your car, get behind the wheel and mellow yourself right into a telephone pole? I mean, you already managed to do that once straight.
4: Or were you straight then? I don't get high and drive. You were going to drive tonight. You know what, don't you guys think you're making a big deal out of this? If it wasn't a big deal, why were you hiding under the bench out there? Because I knew you'd freak. Well, why do you think I'd freak about it? Why do you think so? It's because what you're doing is illegal here.
0: Later in the episode, there's this scene. Look, Brad,
5: I know what this is like. You know, when you're young, you want to have adventures, you think nothing bad can happen to me. It's just not true. Something bad can happen to you. Why would you want to take that risk?
4: Your, your life's you know, on track now. You don't want to do stuff that will get it off track. You, know, you, get, you get so much going for you. you got so much to lose. I mean, how about your soccer scholarship?
5: And the trust of a family who loves you.
4: Well, yeah, I don't want to lose my soccer scholarship. <laughs> well, or the other thing. The other thing is the most important thing in your life. Nobody. Believes or cares in you as much as we do. I know that.
5: So, what now? What
4: are you going to do next time you go to a party?
5: Which, by the way, will be a very long time from now.
4: Someone wants you to smoke some pot, what are you going to do? Yeah. I'll just say no thanks. Oh, come on, just a tell. Come on, Brad, but what's Dad, the matter? Come I on, just, just I won't take it. What are you going to tell them when, when they ask why not? I don't know. I mean, I guess I'll just make up some kind of excuse.
5: Here's what they tell us to use at the counseling center. Tell them that you can't smoke because if you get caught again, your parents are going to put you on drug testing.
4: Well, do you think my friends are really going to buy that? You convince them. Because it'll be true. (laughs) Okay, I get the picture. (laughs) Good. Now this sensitive emotional moment's over. I want you to go back to your room. I'll talk to you tomorrow after
0: 10 o'clock. What then? Sentencing. <laughs> In one episode of the show ER from NBC, which aired on October 29th, 1998, one of the plot lines revolved around two medical students who very nearly overdose on the drug ecstasy. Now, this and other episodes of ER included explicit anti-drug plots and were redeemed by the network, by NBC to the tune of $1.4 million worth of ad time that it could then sell to other companies.
1: And this is because ER was the most popular show in the country, and it wasn't even close at the time. So it could garner way more money.
0: Oh, Willie, wake up.
4: Wake up. I got a weak carotid pulse, but he's not breathing. Oh, man. Oh, gross. Can I do anything? What can I do? Oh. He vomited, that's that's a, that's good, right? No, that's bad. If he vomits and it gets down in his lungs, he could die of aspiration pneumonia.
2: Uh his parents live
5: in Doubters Grove. Here. Call him, give him a call. And hey, we're up here! Second floor! Axe,
4: what's that?
1: Slip with ecstasy. What is that? It's like a narcotic. Did
4: anybody else take it? I don't know. I didn't even know Willie took it.
1: Branch took some earlier. I can't
4: right. leave Willie. I'll go.
1: Uh, ER also had a plot, the prior season, where a woman had a basically a, a fetal crack baby. Uh, they had a crack baby episode. We weren't totally sure which episode was the one they paid for, if it was both, but uh, just a little context. And uh, we played the clip from Chicago Hope. It was the only clip we played in the episode 140. That's the ER knockoff, Chicago Hope. They had a similar scare story about raves and party drugs from the same year. They were paid $500,000, uh, CBS was where a bunch of teens go to the hospital and several die from taking an exotic drug called blue nitro. So there was a real effort to kind of scare kids about the sort of emerging panic around rave drugs or party drugs. I guess maybe they weren't called raves by then, but they were around 99, 2000. And those were purely based on people dying or babies being deformed. The medical shows are used less for the kind of sit down preachy stuff and more just to scare the shit out of people. 1998 was a real
0: doozy for these kinds of episodes. Take, for example, Just the second episode of the show Sports Night, created and written by Aaron Sorkin, the episode is entitled The Apology, in which sportscaster Dan Rydell, played by Josh Charles, has to issue an apology for something that was revealed in like a National Magazine's interview with him, in which he notes that he is in favor of legalizing marijuana. So there's a big uproar. There's some cursory language in the episode about how the war on drugs is a failure. But still, at the end, this is what Dan Rydell... Says right before commercial break in the ESPN Sports Center knockoff show, Sports Night.
7: This network, the Continental Sports Channel, has asked me to clarify some remarks I made in a publication that hit your newsstands this morning. It is possible that one could come away from this article with the impression that I don't believe the drugs are a destructive and deadly force on our culture, our economy, and on the lives of our children.
5: Uh
1: Uh-oh. Talk to me, Dana.
5: Stay with him. Casey, be ready to take us to commercial. Come on, Daniel.
7: I have a younger brother named Sam. Sam's a genius. I mean literally. As a kid, he tested off the charts. The first computer I ever had, he built from a kid he bought with money here earned tutoring other kids in math. He's energetic and articulate, curious and funny. A great source of pride to our parents. And there's no doubt that he'd be living a great life right now, except for that he's dead. Because when you're 14 years old, all you ever really want to be when you grow up is your 16-year-old brother. And in my case, that meant smoking a lot of dope. The day I went off to college was the day that Sam got his driver's license. And he celebrated by taking a drive with some of his friends. Drunk and high as a paper kite. He never saw the red light that he ran. And he probably never saw the 18-wheel truck that put him into the side of a brick bank, either. That was 11 years ago tonight. And I just wanted to say... I'm sorry, Sam. You deserve better in my hands. And I apologize. That's all. Casey and I'll be right back after this with the American League wrap-up. You're watching Sports Night on CSC, so don't go away.
1: So, you know, again, you can have some equivocation about the nature of the war on drugs, but ultimately the, the message has to hit people. You get drunk, you get drive, you die. It's okay, okay. You know, it's a very similar to the theme from Home Improvement, which is basically like, don't smoke weed when you're a kid. You will literally die. And for that, yeah, ABC received $450,000 in rebates. So the next one up, which is the last one on the list, is my personal favorite because it's um, by far the most didactic and unsubtle and cheesy, which is WB Seventh Heaven, which earned about $200,000 being on the WB. It wasn't getting the primo bucks for an episode from season three titled No Sex, Some Drugs and a Little Rock and Roll. This was November 16th of 1998. So we're watching clips where they discuss in detail the dangers of ephedrine, uh, which is a stimulant for those who don't know. And it very much actually just reads like it's written by a cop, like literally like a federal drug agent (laughs) would write. So we're going to listen to a couple of those clips. The first one is the father of one of the daughters who was given ephedrine by another daughter, and he's having a conversation with the other daughter's dad who refuses to listen and is a big fan of having his daughter be addicted to stimulants. So we're going to listen to that now.
6: Thanks for seeing me on such short notice. You sounded pretty upset on the phone. Well, it's about some pills that uh, Diane gave Mary. Body
3: plus. Diane filled me in. I thank you for being so concerned about the girls. But with all due respect, I think you might be overreacting. How much do you know about those pills? I take them myself. I bought them in a health food store. They're natural, and uh, they're perfectly safe.
6: Unfortunately, that's that's exactly what the makers of uh, Body Petrol Plus want you to think, that if it's natural, then it's safe. But in this case, it just isn't true.
4: Well, I don't think I understand.
6: The main ingredient in those pills is something called ephedrine and the makers of uh, Body Petrol Plus and hundreds of products like it figured out that ephedrine in large doses has the same effect as speed. Now some of the manufacturers of ephedrine-based supplements market their product as the uh, natural, legal version of an illegal street truck. Other manufacturers Market to health-conscious people who are looking for more energy in order to work harder or achieve uh, what do they all say? Um, optimum athletic performance.
3: See, that's very interesting because you see
6: that... I... According to the FDA, in the past five years, three dozen deaths have been attributed to ephedrine-related supplements. A lot of those people were young, healthy kids who never thought that they were taking something that could kill them or leave them with permanent disabilities. It's just too bad that people had to die before anyone noticed how bad this stuff is.
3: I can't even imagine someone as healthy
6: as Diane dying. Really? Heart attack, stroke, angina, heart arrhythmias. Those are some of the side effects from using products that contain ephedrine. Oh, and and then of course, there's uh, seizures, vomiting, uh, memory loss, psychiatric disorders, and oh, if you mix Ephedrine with caffeine, like a soda or coffee, and you increase the likelihood of suffering ill effects.
0: Yeah, that just reads like a press release with statistics and really just sort of bludgeoning the audience with, you know, also when taken with coffee, as the kids do these days, this could have ill effects if you think death is an ill effect. It's not looking good for Diane, incidentally, because once you foreshadow the idea that she's super healthy and that her parent doesn't even care adam what is the inevitable consequence that we're going to see on this show
1: uh well you get three guesses your first two don't count his daughter and the and that dad his daughter they're they're uh on a basketball court and uh the skeptical glib father's daughter is uh playing practicing basketball at night really hard because she's fucking spun out of her she's chopping around like a jackrabbit it's gored right so let's <laughs> <laughs> Let's watch that clip right now.
4: Didn't you hear anything my dad said to you? My dad knows what he's talking about too. Nothing is gonna happen to me. Oh yeah? People have died, don't you get it? You can't be this stupid. Look at me. I'm in the best shape of my life. I'm not gonna die. You know, I came to talk to you tonight because I thought I could get you to do the right thing and stop taking those pills. But now I realize I can't make you do something that you don't want to do. Good. But I am not just gonna stand by and watch you hurt yourself. So you're on your own. Don't go. Why should I stay? I'll make you a deal. You stop bugging me about the pills and at the end of the season, I'll stop taking them. Completely. You should stop now. I can't. At the end of the season, you'll stop for good? (sighs) I guess it's better than nothing. We've still got time to catch my mom making an idiot out of herself with my dad's wacky friends. Right after
2: Quick Game 21. Yeah.
4: Whoa, nice shot. Hey, my ball. You okay?
2: Okay,
1: so yeah, hepped up on goofballs, that's where it gets you. Right, and so the obvious question you probably have in your mind while listening to this is, wait a second, didn't Jesse Spano's equally dubious caffeine addiction episode, that was was caffeine pills originally in the script, it was supposed to be amphetamines similar to the 7th Heaven episode. Mm-hmm. But they decided that was too heavy for Saturday afternoon. So that's a little different. That aired prior to this program in 1997. Again, we don't know what kind of deals the White House or the Department of Justice or DEA had with the other TV networks in previous years. We don't. We can only speculate. But Saved by the Bell was a Saturday, effectively a Saturday morning program. And Saturday morning programs, there's a great article called The Great Marketing Deregulation in the 1980s. Uh, Ronald Reagan changed marketing to children. It was written in July of 2020 by uh, Jamie Logie. We'll link to that in the show notes. Uh, but basically, it's long story short, the, the Children's Television Act of 1990 was designated to provide educational broadcasting programs for kids. It was building off self-regulation that basically said, in exchange for Saturday morning shows to advertise toys and cereal and action figures and junk food to kids, that there would be a requirement that Saturday morning shows have some educational element to them, which is why... Saved by the Bell very frequently would have a episode about embracing cultural differences or embracing people with disabilities, or in this case, a couple episodes about drugs. And so this falls under a kind of different framework that was not about paying necessarily giving ad rebates, but was was an agreement between the networks and the uh, FTC to provide educational content. Sometimes, which he writes, they would try to cheat by running reruns of the Flintstones or the Jetsons and say it had moral lessons.
0: They were like, oh no, that was for educational
1: merit. Yeah, one of the reasons why Save Bell would, have, would be, was so preachy is because that was part of its position in Saturday morning television. Uh, also, Aaron Spelling claims he, he always wanted to have the show be about lessons. So they would always teach Zach, who's was a sociopath, various lessons. That's kind of a, whenever we address this topic, people always say, what about the Jesse Spano episode? Because it's so infamous. We just wanted to touch on that. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm so scared. That that probably falls within the purview of uh, the the educational requirement of Saturday morning television. So, and this all kind of sounds benign, right? You sort of want to scare teenagers into not doing drugs. But there has been studies that show that it's entirely ineffective. Scaring the shit out of people is actually not a way to educate people about substance abuse and substance use. Yeah, so for
0: example, in a December 2011 Business Insider article, writer Laura Stampler actually details quite clearly just how ineffective this campaign was. She writes this, quote, a 2003 study by the National Institute on Drug Abuse found that, quote, youth who were more exposed to the anti-drug advertising campaign messages are no more likely to hold favorable beliefs or intentions about marijuana than are youth less exposed to those messages, end quote. In 2006, the Government Accountability Office concluded that the $1.2 billion spent on anti-drug ads, quote, was not effective in reducing youth drug use either during the entire period of the campaign or during the period from 2002 to 2004 when the campaign was redirected and focused on marijuana use, end quote. An earlier report from 2002 by the White House Office of Management And Budget stated that the ad campaign had, quote, not demonstrated the results sought and does not yet have adequate performance measures and related goals, end quote. Over a billion dollars were spent on these campaigns in total, of course. And despite the fact that they were, as we've been saying, completely useless, they were so ineffective that by 2012... The U.S. government had cut all funding for them. As recounted in a 2014 article in Ad Age, The decline stems mostly from a move by Congress to eliminate the media budget for the Office of National Drug Control Policy. The office had been funding anti-drug ads aimed at teens since 1998, including a 2002 Super Bowl ad that linked drugs to terrorism and boasted a media budget of $100 million as recently as 2007. But the government program was constantly under assault by critics who said it was ineffective and the effort endured a series of budget cuts before it was altogether axed from the 2012 federal budget, End quote.
1: And of course, it was ineffective by its nominal goal. Its real goal, of course, had nothing to do with public education. In addition, a comprehensive study by Robert Hornick, Lalila Jacobson, Robert Orrin, Andrea Pice and Graham Colton in the American Journal of Public Health found that the ONDCP's national youth anti-drug media campaign had absolutely zero effect on youth drug use. The abstract would re-quote from September of 1999 to June of 2004, three nationally representative cohorts of U.S. youths aged 9 to 18 years old were surveyed at home four times. Sample size ranges from 8,117 in the first to 5,126 in the fourth rounds, 65% first round response rate. The main outcomes were self-reported lifetime per year and past 30-day marijuana use and related cognitions. Results, most analysis showed no effect of the (laughs) campaign. Unquote. Womp womp. The goal was to inject and reinforce tropes of fear, tough love cliches, and abstinence only, which uh, all by extension promote criminalization. They wanted to reinforce the basic premises and conventional wisdom of the war on drugs. Drug education quickly became war on drug propaganda when it goes beyond the empirical medical advice into sanctimony, fear-mongering, and moralism, as the Education Resource Development Center wrote in April of 2021, quote, since the 1960s, substance misuse prevention practitioners have relied heavily on scare tactics and fear-based messages as core elements of prevention program. Focused on eliciting an emotional response, these messages have historically been moralistic in nature, exaggerating the harmful effects of substance use, and often failing to include factual information about the dangers of use. Moreover, most messages have focused entirely on abstinence rather than on reducing rates of misuse or the harmful consequences of use. Though practitioners often turn to this type of messaging reflexively, a significant body of evidence suggests that scare tactics and fear-based approaches have not been effective in preventing substance misuse and in some cases have actually contributed to the increase of use. And ERDC's research cites studies as far back as 1992 to substantiate their claim that fear-based drug use doesn't work. So we knew before the 1997 to 2000 program that fear-based tactics did not achieve their nominal gain. What we propose somewhat cynically is, of course, that wasn't really the point.
0: Right. There was an upside to this, both in uh, political messaging, but also in the, you know, continued funding of the war on drugs Uh, by continuing to ramp up fear about drugs. These campaigns tried to boost support for the war on drugs as it was central to President Clinton's increase in domestic policing, provided the core pretext for U.S. involvement meddling in Latin America, right? And supporting governments there that would, you know, buy military equipment that would get U.S. training and the like. So it had a political effect uh, far more than an alleged educational effect.
1: And this kind of panic, of course, leads to legislative outcomes. As we noted in episode 140, a lot of the demagoguery around rave drugs, which were these underground parties that your teen was going to go to and die, the Chicago Hope episode about blue nitro or the ER episode about ecstasy, these helped fuel the panic for the 2002 Reducing America's Vulnerability to Ecstasy Act, or the Rave Act, which was later renamed the Illicit Drug Anti-Proliferation Act of 2002. This created severe penalties around drug paraphernalia that effectively made handing out water illegal at large parties like raves resulting in countless deaths, as Zach Siegel noted in uh, episode 140. But more importantly, let's look at the context in which the Clinton White House, which was again, looking over these scripts, paying people this money, ostensibly concerned about the war on drugs, what their other political war on drugs messaging was at the time. Specifically, we want to focus on Clinton's creation of Plan Columbia, which was later doubled and tripled down by the Bush White House, which is now viewed as a huge human rights disaster.
0: So under the auspices of fighting a war on drugs in 1999, there was a multi-billion dollar plan that sent 500 US military personnel to, quote, train local forces, end quote, in Colombia, ostensibly for the purposes of eradicating coca. This aid was an addition to the already $330 million of previously approved U.S. aid to Colombia. This funding only increased. Earmarked for the year 2000 was an additional $818 million, an additional $256 million the following year in 2001. These appropriations for the plan made Colombia the third largest recipient of U.S. foreign aid at the time. Looking back, a truth and reconciliation report by the Colombian government itself, released just last year in June of 2022, details the death squads and executions carried out under Plan Colombia, as authorized by both the Clinton and Bush White Houses. In its article about the commission, the New York Times wrote in July 2022, quote, "...the mounting U.S. war against drug trafficking had disastrous social and environmental effects." turning poor farmers into enemies of the state, and poisoning once fertile landscapes. Quote, the consequences of this concerted and largely U.S.-driven approach, the report said, led to a, quote, hardening of the conflict in which the civilian population has been the main victim, end quote. So part of the relevance of this is that these operations were happening at exactly the same time that American audiences, teenagers and their parents alike, we're being bombarded with this primetime drug war propaganda, right? So at the exact same time as they were watching these shows, the US government was literally subsidizing death squads in Colombia, but... Under the guise of fighting a war on drugs, the New York Times article on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission would go on to say this, quote, other documents show that the United States new oil companies were paying paramilitaries for protection and that at least one company gathered intelligence for the Colombian military. One company was, quote, actively providing intelligence on guerrilla activities directly to the army, according to the CIA, using an airborne surveillance system along the pipeline to expose guerrilla encampments and intercept guerrilla communications, end quote. The Times goes on to say this, that the Columbia Army, quote, successfully exploited this information and inflicted an estimated 100 casualties during an operation against the guerrillas in 1997, according to the Colombian report.
1: Plan Colombia was, of course, about snuffing out leftist insurgents and the remnants of post-Cold War opposition to U.S. hegemony in the region. And protecting multinational corporate profits, drugs, of course, were largely pretextual, especially since we now know that the pro-U.S. President Alvaro Uribe, who worked with the U.S. during this quote-unquote anti-drug campaign, was himself funded and backed by major drug traffickers, a fact the U.S. State Department uh, openly talked about prior to his rise in the 1990s. From the New York Times 2018 article, Cables contain claims former Colombian leader is tied to drug traffickers. This is a New York Times article from 2018 would read, quote, One cable from 1993 described an embassy meeting with Luis Guillermo Vélez Trujillo, then a Liberal Party senator. The senator complained that the Vasquez family, a top Colombian clan in Mr. Escobar's Medellin cartel, quote, had financed Mr. Uribe's political campaigns. The article would then go on to describe how Uribe was funded by Pablo Escobar when he was running for mayor of Medellin and later became a senator from that same area as well as governor, that he was basically backed and funded by the drug cartels. And now let's cut to an article from the time in which the U.S. was supporting Plan Colombia and later supported Uribe, who became president from 2002 to 2010. This is from january 11, 2000 this is two days before salon broke their article about the white house drug policy campaign quote president clinton plans to announce on tuesday 1.28 billion dollar emergency aid program for colombia to help that country fight the growing narcotics trade and prop up its democracy over the next two years a senior administration official said quote the president believes there is strong national interest in helping colombia deal with their narcotics threat unquote so here you have this constellation of things going on, uh, look, obviously some stupid fucking speech in seventh heaven is not going to you know, necessarily be the, the straw that breaks the camel's back with respect to funding Plan Colombia and other right-wing death squads and backing up right-wing politicians who themselves are funded by narcotics dealers under the pretense of fighting narcotics. But it is part of a broader constellation of propaganda that we've been fed and that we were fed far more acutely back then of keeping... You know, it's the opposite of the Jesse Jackson keep hope alive. It's a keep fear alive. You sort of have to constantly keep the panicked fear alive because law enforcement is not concerned with preventing people from doing drugs or to educating people. Now, look, do I think some like low level lawyer at the White House thinks they're doing some good and maybe throws in some decent public health information? Sure. But fundamentally, when you address public health issues as law enforcement issues, they become law enforcement narratives which deal in fear and abstinence only and tough love and these kind of cartoon narratives of trying to scare the shit out of teenagers, because again, the goal is to scare the shit out of the parents, because that's how you build public support for a war on drugs. And this has been the case since the
0: early 70s, when Nixon literally said that drug abuse is, what Adam? America's public enemy number one, right? It wasn't a public health concern. It was a criminal law enforcement concern.
1: So you don't get a regime where it's about education, it's about context, it's about how to get treatment, it's about just say no, right? Even you know, home improvements is just say no. That's their fucking magic solution at the end, and it's all part of this sort of broad cultural milieu of drugs are this nasty foreign thing that enters our lives and corrupts our kids and our kind of white suburban peaceful neighborhoods. They have no cultural or political antecedents. You know, we're not we're not even going to talk about the CIA's role in the drug trafficking trade around you know just before this, right? It sort of comes out of nowhere and comes in the middle of the night. And before you know it, your kid is engaged in white slavery and all this sort of bad stuff happens. It's not about educating people because if you properly educate people and provide sober advice, that doesn't really help fuel a war. It certainly doesn't help fuel a pretextual war in Colombia, for example, or other Latin American kind of quote unquote anti-drug efforts that frankly make a lot of money and help the US extend a lot of illegitimate power. And so, um, you know, this was the fact that they were doing all these schlocky script writing on popular TV while at the same time backing politicians funded by drug dealers, could perhaps maybe one make a little cynical about the point of the war on drugs, in case it's not obvious.
0: To discuss this more, we're now going to be joined by Cassandra Frederic, Executive Director of the Drug Policy Alliance. We'll talk to Cassandra in just a moment. Stay with us. We are joined now by Cassandra Frederic. Cassandra, thank you so much for joining us today on Citations
1: Needed. Thanks so much for having me. So we began the top of the show talking about the history of the ways in which these very special episodes kind of drilled their way into our collective pop culture understanding of not just TV, of course, but how we view drugs. And, of course, we have a lot of laughs and we make a lot of fun of it. But this was a deliberate government effort alongside other efforts that were not necessarily so top down or sinister to really kind of approach drugs as a, for want of a better term, as a means of scaring this shit out of children. <laughs> and by extension, scaring parents and using fear to promote drug policy that was based on an abstinence mindset. So I want to sort of begin, if you could, if you would indulge and maybe speculate a little bit about how this approach of fear rather than education, abstinence rather than mitigation and education really kind of began to define how most people understood drugs as this very scary, one pill can kill kind of thing that you're supposed to have your children avoid at all costs.
2: You know, I think one of the things that is so interesting and actually infuriating when you get into drug policy is about how much of it was constructed and how much effort the government has put into infiltrating every part of our lives to shape the way that we think about drugs and not actually even giving us the opportunity to like create our own opinions about how we could experience drugs or anything like that. So I think when we learn that things like the PSAs or the episodes, as you know, as a kid who grew up in the nineties and watched TGIF and can recite, <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. you know,
2: all the lines from the different episodes from Safe by the Bell to Family Matters to, you know, Fresh Prince, The thing about it is, like, you think all these things that you think about drugs are just, like, normal. Like, this is the normal information. And then when you pull the curtain back and you realize, like, oh, no, people sat down and thought about this and chose to communicate this information this way so it could potentially impact our behavior. And it failed so miserably. It forces me to think, like, what would have been the result If they used all that time and effort to have a conversation that was not fear-based, that wasn't based in abstinence, but was actually more realistic to what everyday people were seeing in their lives. But it really goes to show, like, you know, the drug war and the things that we're experiencing is not by happenstance that people actually put these things together, Mm -hmm. which means that the things that we're navigating are a result of the bad choices that our decision makers made.
0: We've been talking, as Adam said, about drug messaging, really anti-drug propaganda placed into popular TV shows and such, like as a government mandate, right? Like via the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy. And so I'd love to just hear from you, you know, as someone that that did grow up watching these shows, as I did as well, like, what kind of effect do you think this near constant barrage, or at least, you know, season after season, the effect that these kinds of, you know, very special episode messaging through pop culture aimed at kids, you know, masked as not only entertainment, but education. How do you think that has shaped, you know, over the past few decades, the way that we still understand drug policy, the way we understand punishment, the way we understand policing and the way we understand the war on drugs in general?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think there are a couple of things, right? I think the idea of addiction is super flat. And I think people learn differently. But I think there's still a large group of people that feel like if you try a drug once, then you're hooked forever completely flattening the conversation around dependence and addiction. And so it completely shapes the idea of what addiction is. I think our shows and the mandate was really to make it as scary as possible. Also, it shaped the way that we see people who use drugs and really made us also arbiters to the dehumanization of other people. And also reinforces this idea that people choose drugs over others, right? Their family, their teams, these other things that really connect to this moral underpinning that these people are bad and the choices that they've done are bad. And the bad things that happen to them are because they use drugs, not because of any other thing. Mm -hmm. So I feel like so much of The ONDCP mandate infiltrating entertainment was really to try to, one, abdicate their own responsibility for the circumstances that people are navigating, like poverty, (laughs) but also making everything super individualistic. Like this person is making a bad choice, and that's why their life looks like that. Because, you know, when you think about all the shows, like everything was focused on that individual it was really realistic as to how these things happen It never showed the outside circumstances that shaped people's choices and it also never showed the ways of people using drugs and not struggling or ending up addicted or people using drugs and having a good time right
1: there was only one path
2: destruction you know uh, yeah i suppose
1: if they showed them having a really good time that may not be the best idea <laughs> but i it's more realistic though right
2: I mean, but also it's like, it's interesting too, because like, think about the like drinking episodes, right?
1: Yeah, exactly.
2: Even the drinking episodes were exaggerated. And so I think, you know, it really fell flat because it was only one note that they wanted to hit. And what I find really ridiculous is that, you know, now you have conversations with ONDCP and, and they want to talk about stigma. And I'm like, well, you spent 30 years making this stigma. <laughs>
1: exactly. <laughs> right.
2: So why don't you do the same thing and go into the entertainment world and mandate them to do more realistic versions of drug use?
1: Yeah, because the, there's there's never obviously any structural reason. You have these characters, you see them every week, you kind of know them, whether it be a sitcom or a drama. And then drugs are kind of this outside force that sort of comes in in one of like 150 episodes. And it's like the drug episode, everybody knows what it is. It's, it's a trope. And the character kind of does this paradise Lost where they fall and then are redeemed Mm-hmm. and paradise is regained at the end or they kind of seek help. And it's like drugs are this foreign invader that comes in rather than something that is, like you mentioned, has material antecedents like poverty or mental health issues or lack of adequate healthcare and mental health care. all these sort of- Or things that are not so negative. Right. Sure, but I meant like the, the social conditions that lead to say like, for example, a massive increase in opioid addiction. It's a social phenomenon that has social causes rather than like millions of discrete moral failings. <laughs>
2: Well, also, like, think of the character tropes, right? There's you ruin your life, but there is also the kind of insensitive comedic relief that people do around characters that use drugs. I'm thinking a lot about, like, in African American films about people that struggled with crack, right? Or also how some drugs are more associated with certain classes. And you have the conversation about, you know, the rich woman who anytime dealing with her kids or some fight with her loved ones you know she pops some pills and takes a a sip of wine and everyone and like that character is (laughs) like the rich lady who's just can't deal with her life and rather be stoned the whole time but even that narrative is different (laughs) than the narrative of Jesse Spano on Saved by the Bell right like there are these tropes that they really want us to do and even if there is variation, there's always this negative thing around it.
1: Well, right. You're supposed. The goal is to kind of scare people. There's the Chicago Hope episode we discussed where, I mean, it's, you know, first time they use it. All these kids are dying. I mean, it's every parent's worst nightmare, right? You have a 15, 16-year-old who goes to, you know, says he's, says she's spending the night over at Tiffany's house. And the next thing you know, she shows up dead in the ER because she was going to some rave. I mean, in this episode, helps spurn, and along with other rave-related content, help spurn the Rave Act of 2002, which basically made any kind of paraphernalia, even harm reduction paraphernalia, like say, for example, water, Mm -hmm. made it illegal to have in a party setting. So there's all these kind of negative consequences of having policy based on, let's scare the shit out of middle class white people. So let's, I want to kind of move on. You've written that quote, the war on drugs was an absolute miscalculation of human behavior, which I think is really an interesting way of phrasing it, which is to say it was based on Mick morality, kind of Protestant Mick morality, where it's like, it seems cheap and easy, just say no, all that kind of stuff. And I want to sort of dive into this. I want to kind of ask you where you think the war on drugs narrative is breaking down of late. Obviously, there's been shifts. There's been some efforts to decriminalize, but I want to be very clear. War on drugs, despite people saying, you know, post-war on drugs, after the war on drugs, is very much not over. There's still, most drugs are still illegal. Most A lot of people still go to prison and jail for drugs. The population's reduced slightly, but it is still very much a thing. If you can, I want you to talk about where you think this narrative is beginning to break down. I know that there was a moral panic recently around Biden wanting to hang out crack pipes that sat back messaging around harm reduction about 20 years, unfortunately. And I want you to sort of give an example, if you could, of any recent pop culture, whether it be TV, film, books, even, even though nobody reads, um, of, uh, including me, don't believe in it, um, of people who have addressed drugs in ways that you thought were, if not perfect, an improvement.
2: I feel like I have a higher standard.
1: Yeah, of course. (laughs)
2: You know, right? So people love dope sick. And I was like, oh, I cannot.
1: <laughs> well, Dope right? Sick was the FBI commercial. That was the problem with Dope Sick.
2: Yeah. I was just like, this is not it. Yeah. Either. No, that was right? that was
1: that was serious propaganda Yeah.
2: Yeah. But you know, so many people like were really moved by it. And so, you know, I've been really careful because there were some people that really saw themselves in that. But, you know, and then there's the conversation, what's the other show that folks love with one of my celebrity heroes, Zendaya, with Uh, Euphoria. euphoria. And I'm like, this is so, like, I just, I'm like, this is outlandish. And there are people in our world that are like, this is a better, it's more realistic. And I'm like, it's still super sensationalized. And it's still based on this idea of making drugs super scary and using a strategy of sensationalism to have a really serious conversation, right? And like, there's no, I have not seen as many conversations about positive uses or neutral uses of drugs. I mean, I, I think about psychedelics, like with nine perfect strangers, but I think that that's playing the role that kind of like weeds played, right? With trying to mainstream a class of drugs that folks with access have, with access and money want access to, want more convenience around. And it's their own version of propaganda that helps potential advocacy in the broader space. But I think the shows and the conversations that follow certain drugs will be, like, you're not going to see that for heroin. You're not going to see that for cocaine or crack. I mean, again, cocaine is still exceptionally um, sensationalized with, you know, our obsession with organizations that sell drugs, right? Like, even cocaine is still connected and heroin is still connected to quote, unquote, drug cartels and, you know, that part of the drug war. So, you know, I have a hard time coming up with examples of like neutral drug use or like sensational or they're doing it better. I find that even the narrative around the drug war, I think a lot of people are like the war on drugs should end. But when you ask people what that means to them, they think that means the legalization of cannabis, right? They don't think about the other drugs, Right,
1: right. right. It's funny you mentioned cocaine because one of the things we talked about is the way in which historically in many pop culture depictions, the racialization of cocaine even extends very much to pop culture. You know, Powder cocaine is seen as almost a joke. It's funny. It's Wolf of Wall Street. It's like Scarface. It's um, Cocaine Bear. Oh, the bear does a lot of coke and kills people. Isn't that funny? Whereas things like crack, are, because the racialized are seen as kind of dirty, stigmatized, Under the, it's, it's sort of not considered funny. So even the kind of, there's kind of a glib attitude about things that that wealthy people do in bathrooms in Manhattan versus the other thing, which is seedy and dirty. And and I think that both reinforces and reflects the the racial disparities of sentencing and and other things, which still exist, by the way, as you know.
0: Yeah. That actually makes me think of this. You know, the war on drugs was in many ways and often explicitly so part of the official government backlash to the radical anti-war and black power movements of the 60s, right? And there's this infamous John Ehrlichman quote, which we mentioned earlier in the episode today, where he flat out says that the whole impetus for the war on drugs was, quote, getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily, end quote, so that the Nixon administration and we can assume future administrations could quote, disrupt those communities, end quote, you know, by arrests and raids and breaking up their meetings, surveillance. and. But he ends by saying this and also to, quote, vilify them on the evening news, end quote. So, Cassandra, in your work at Drug Policy Alliance, how are you addressing not only the horrific toll that policing and imprisonment has had on countless communities, but also this narrative piece, right? This narrative war that you just mentioned, the deeply negative associations that many people still have, not only about drugs, but how they are then associated and used to condemn movements for justice at large.
2: I think we're still trying to figure that out. I mean, you mentioned it a little bit earlier. I think one of the things that we've realized is while we've moved policy change, the narrative work while it's had some remarkable conversations it hasn't moved that much and or if it's moved it's very easy to move back
5: Mm -hmm.
2: and I think with the incident with Biden and harm reduction and crack pipes and pushing it into the black community and it being racial equity you know there's still very much the conversation about how and why drugs were put in black communities and I think It goes back to this conversation about the reckoning, right? Like, we don't even want to tell the truth about the role that the U.S. government played in getting drugs into this community, the role that they've used drugs in exchange for their foreign policy. And there is a lot of mistrust, and rightfully so. And people can see the writing on the wall about how drugs are used to disrupt political movements, how drugs are used to disrupt our leaders. And, you know, when the Ehrlichman quote came out, I don't think anyone was surprised. I think people were like, yes, we knew this, right? Like, now you can stop saying that we're experiencing these things because we inherently are bad people. Like, these were intentional choices. And I think one of the things that has been why it's easier to pass policy reform as opposed to do the deep narrative work is because the narrative work requires an acknowledgement of intentionality. Policy work is more like, okay, this is a problem, let's fix it. And the narrative work is like, hey, we actively talked like this for a long time. We put these images out. We told people to be scared of certain things. And now we're wrong. And we're gonna say something different because people, you know, it's the same where it's like a lie goes around the world, you know, once in a certain time, but it takes truth much longer. And that's what we're in right now. And it's much deeper work. And it's why people, like even if the ONDCP decided to like do shows now, people would be less likely to believe it. Right.
1: That's a good point. Because I think that changing policy in a kind of abstract way can make it seem like an accident. Like, oh, we were kind of mistaken. We bumbled around. We did the same. Whereas narrative work implies that the actual underlying logic was a lie Mm -hmm. or was based on kind of racist fear And that would require some accountability because obviously many of the same people who pushed that and still push that are very much still in power. So it'd have to be an acknowledgement that the approach over the last, you know, 50, 60 years was deliberately deceptive rather than kind of bumbling or mistake. Because I, and again, I think people have known this shit for a long time. I mean, you know, this is not, we've known that the way in which we categorized and penalized even things like cannabis, we, everybody knows that was I mean, go back and read articles from the New York Times in the nineteen, in the late 1990s, and they're saying, well, you know, some, you know, many scientists are saying that cannabis is actually better than alcohol, and that's legal. I mean, this was not a mystery, but it's just there was so much invested in this regime. A lot of reasons for foreign policy reasons. Otherwise, you know, without a war on drugs, there's no pretextual reason to fight leftists in South America and, 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 and Latin America in general. So once you sort of accept that as something that should be decriminalized, it sort of you lose so much power and people don't, obviously don't want to sort of give up powers.
2: And for this, like, look at the example of the opioid epidemic, quote unquote, right? Like, even that, look at all the different ways that people looked for a scapegoat, as opposed to having a larger conversation as to why pharmaceutical companies were able to do what they could do. Or, you know, in the mid 2000 odds right like people were writing articles that black people were protected from the overdose crisis because doctors were less likely to give them prescription drugs right like right?
0: like medical racism was somehow saving lives yeah
2: was a protective risk factor like this was like the conversation and it's just like Y'all did so much contorting that you've killed 104,000 people in one year. Mm -hmm. This shit is like, y'all did this on purpose. And like, y'all conforted yourselves in so many different ways that y'all got stuck and you started killing your own. That's how fucked up this shit is, right? Like, Mm -hmm. y'all really went out of your way and created a narrative. And look at the different, the cycles of narratives that we had to go through and the cycles of narratives that we still go through on TV about the overdose crisis, right? It's very much the prescription companies are the evil people. Well, why the prescription companies have all that access?
0: But also it's about, you know, I mean, from shows like BoJack Horseman to Shameless that have had opioid plot lines, I mean, to name only two out of the many, you know, to your point, Cassandra, even as written, even as scripted those plot lines then are about systems. Mm-hmm. They're not about individual moral failings in the way that plot lines previously, like in the 80s and 90s, were about like, you know, oh, this one pusher who gets to the to the main character and does this thing. And like that now there are these kind of broader stories that bring in systems, but still relegated to, I would argue, largely white characters in largely white spaces. And so you can kind of see how maybe there has been movement narratively in a certain way, but it still does, to your point, reinforce so many of the previous tropes That hold so much power because I think those previous stories still stay as kind of individual responsibility, moral failing stories and are not allowed that same kind of systems perspective that I think the opioid crisis or the overdose crisis has since garnered.
2: Yeah. And I mean, like there's a whole opioid narrative that is happening about the things that they're not saying prohibition and drugs is a market. Even making drugs illegal is a market. And having legal drugs is a market. And one of the things that we learn with the opioid crisis at DPA, we don't say that it was a single actor. We don't think it's only because of the pharmaceutical companies, right? Like there were multiple factors there, but the pharmaceutical companies engagement was like supercharged capitalism. And the playbook that they used in marketing their drugs if you read some of those things are based on the racist tropes that the US government had pushed in like putting forward cops and things like that right so it's like mm-hmm. so much of it is about like what is said and what is not said even the idea of the accidental addict right even the idea of them making the face of the overdose crisis like grandma and the cheerleader and the football player like all these things were intentional choices that were about one shielding, you know, larger actors from responsibility, but also reinforcing this idea that this was an accident and the people that we have been used to identifying as people who use drugs, it was because those people inherently were bad and like were morally inept. And one of the things that I will say about the 90s shows is that outside of the pusher that they used to put, you know, that the pusher character, the individuals, they made you it just talked about how precarious and tenuous everything was because they often did it with like either a main character or a character's friend, right? That you were supposed to have like built in empathy for. But very quickly you would see in the show how people lost empathy for those people. So it also taught us how to deal with people who are navigating complicated human behavior. And I think, you know, going back to the point you said about what I've written before about like the war on drugs being a miscalculation of human behavior is like we give people way more chances and we use more colors than black and white. And I think that as we're having this conversation, you know, it's really about us really expanding what is what it is that we're saying and trying to see, because often the conversation is just super flat.
0: Totally. So, Before we let you go, Cassandra, and thank you so much for spending this time with us, tell us a little bit more about what DPA is up to these days, what folks can look out for, what they can learn from you all, what they can maybe support on. Tell our listeners what you have going on.
2: Yeah, so Drug Policy Alliance, we're a national organization working to end the punishment and stigma associated with drugs. So we are working with different groups around the country to pass laws, to do public education events that really remove law enforcement as the responder to drugs. We really want to figure out who are alternative responders. If someone is having a hard time with drugs, what is the infrastructure we need for our loved ones when they're going through a hard time? And then what are the different kinds of conversations and education that we need to be talking to people? Like, how do people use drugs and not die? Like, basic information that our government should actually be giving that they don't because they're so busy like trying to scare us into uh, submission. So, you know, folks can follow us on TikTok, more Drug Policy Alliance on TikTok, Drug Policy Org on Twitter, Drug Policy Alliance on Facebook. And people can join our list. We send out information. We do events around the country. This year, we'll be in Phoenix, Arizona for our biannual conference. So people want to meet other folks that think that the war on drugs is doing more harm than good. They should definitely come out to Phoenix, Arizona in October 2023. The information is on our website, which is www.drugpolicy.org.
0: Well, that is a fantastic place to leave. it. urge everyone to do that. Cassandra Frederique, executive director of the Drug Policy Alliance. Thank you so much for joining us today on Citations Needed.
2: Thanks for having
1: me. For about 10, 15 years, it's sort of been hip to say, oh, war on drugs is bad. You know, we need to sort of have a different approach. Of course, they'll never say they want to legalize or decriminalize most drugs. They would say weed because it's kind of the lowest hanging fruit. But the war on drugs is very much still with us and many of the tropes are still with us This kind of abstinence only fear-based tough love tropes mm-hmm. despite the fact that people may nominally know it's that it doesn't work or it's a bad idea because it's become more popular over the years the basic premises that were are reinforced by pop culture again not exclusively from er and, and cosby and the drew carey show and other tv shows in the 90s but they were part of a broader ecosystem of misinformation And fear that I think we, to this day, we still live. I mean, people still speak in these kind of tough love tropes and these kind of one and done tropes that are really harmful and damaging. And again, not only sort of prop up bad foreign policy, but also prop up mass incarceration, Mm -hmm. which goes hand in hand with what Clinton did with the 1994 crime bill, uh, 100,000 more cops, all that kind of fun stuff that helped perpetuate mass incarceration. All that is part of a broader ecosystem of punishment and Puritan approach to drugs and uh, treating it like a crime problem, which we still do, by the way. People like to think we don't, but the boring drugs is very much in the present. Yeah, and
0: I think, you know, looking at that trajectory from heavy-handed PSAs to these uh, subtly spun plot lines in popular shows, obviously undisclosed that the networks and the shows themselves were being paid to do it, and then moving into, as we have also discussed on this show, Adam, before, into the kind of reality series trope of addiction or tough love, shows that also have had very, very deleterious and harmful effects, not only in the exploitation of people, but in the fact that those shows themselves and the treatments that a lot of people receive through those shows are also very often ineffective and can be even more dangerous.
1: And there's a reason why they chose pop culture TV shows. There's a reason why they didn't disclose it. Because they know that especially kids of that generation, kids of our generation, at least my generation, I don't know. I know you're older than me, but not by much. Oh, um, <laughs> that's so mean. That they're quite cynical about ads. Yeah. And they're quite cynical about things they view as being pitches or commercials. So if you can weave it into the show, it's more effective. I think a lot about the court of Joseph II, he viewed himself as this kind of enlightened despot of the Holy Roman Empire in the mid to late 18th century. And they had free press. You could pretty much publish whatever you want. But the one thing he censored was the opera because he was the sort of art of, you know, has a reputation now of being this kind of upper class thing. But back in the day, it was sort of the masses went to the opera. The stage in particular, he viewed as being a place of morality and they they heavily censored operas. That's why the Marriage of Figaro is so corny compared to its French predecessor because he wanted to promote conservatism and morality on the stage. And I think that television today serves a similar function. It's kind of the place where we ingest morality and political narratives most easily because our defenses are not up. It's emotional rather than intellectual. It's not an op-ed in the New York Times. It's a fucking storyline of some dumb TV show, right? But in that way, it's more effective. And I think those in power sort of know that. They know that if they can, in this particular instance, if they can get their message in a TV show, it's worth a thousand X compared to some corny fucking ad.
0: Yeah. Well, which is why it is so effective and also important when pop culture represents different ways of thinking about these things that have been so kind of uh, hammered into us for so long that when there are alternatives, when there are different kinds of narratives shared, it is such a revelation. And yet it is still just a drop in the bucket. Incidentally, I should point out that Joseph II was the brother of Marie Antoinette. So in case you want a sense of what that family was like.
1: So, yeah. And again, you know, who knows what goes on today? Uh, we have no idea. I know a lot of this is done through uh, foundations. Uh, we only know this because of some intrepid reporter from Salon 23 years ago. My assumption is that if he didn't write that report, we would just never know about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, but here we are. That will do it for this episode of
0: Citations Needed, the first of the year 2023. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, Happy New Year. We're thrilled to be back. More episodes are coming your way, along with many news briefs, so stay tuned. Of course, you can follow the show on Twitter at CitationsPod. Facebook, Citations Needed. Become a supporter of our work through Patreon.com slash citations needed podcast, all your support through Patreon is so incredibly appreciated as we are 100% listener funded. And as always, a very special shout out goes to our critic level supporters through Patreon. They include Chris Sarah, Dash X, Ben Lazar, Joe schmoe James Michaela, Greg Wesney, Drew Johnson, Max belanger David bettner Brendan O'Connor, Ultra Miraculous, Zappo, Sturm Wyvern, Darren Brady, Bart courcy rob Mr. Honey Crisp, Justin Harper, Max Wilsey, Blake Bunnell, Zenia Zdvornik, Brendan Hines, Doc Wright, all Philip Moss Rulo's Bar Morgan Green Hopkins Eric Knight Lorenzo Mitchell Zach Cathcart Brad Hayward Ed Zitron, Corporate Zombie Joseph Erickson Eric Joyner Buzz Among Us Stinky Pete D.L. Singfield Jam Geralt, Chris Vincent Nigel Kirby Scott Roth Porter Schutz Zachary Henson Josh Gerlum Joe Wenger Staley Dan Halen Douglas Danger Manly Green New Neil Trasdat Brickshop Audio Supple Old Man Natika Reddy David McMurray MSP William Rush Jason Eason Shock fist Weed Lord, Backups Care, and of course, computer scare. I'm Nima Shirazi. I'm Adam Johnson. Our senior producer is Florence Burrow Adams. Producer is Julianne Tweeton. Production assistant is Trenda Lightburn. Our newsletter is by Marco Cardellano. Transcriptions are by Morgan McCaslin. The music is by Granddaddy. Thanks again everyone. Happy New Year. We'll catch you next time.